Hello and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Hello, my name is Jeremy Oppenheim. I'm the founder and senior partner of Systemic. Could you tell us a little bit more about Systemic? What is its premise and uh, its mission statement, really? So Systemic is uh, now just over four years old, and we have offices of in Indonesia and Munich and London and, and now Brazil. Um, and the premise is very simple, which is that in order to deliver the Paris Agreement and the SDGs, um, we need to drive you know, fundamental change in the way in which our economic systems operate. Um, and that requires us to bring together um, the best thinking around you know, good policy, uh, good business innovation, uh, finance, um, and changes in the way in which you know, societal norms operate, and that you have to integrate those into an overall approach of of system change. Um, I mean, people call it many different things. It, some people describe it in terms of you know the structural transformation, but it but it does recognise that in order to to drive really deep and fundamental shifts in the way our economy operates, it just can't be a tweak to the the current business as usual model. We need something much more profound, much more radical in terms of the, the, the degree of change. When you talk about systems and systems change, they're quite trendy words now, aren't they? Sort of buzzwords. But what exactly does that mean? How do you go about something so enormous as changing a whole system? Presumably you need everyone on board for that. You need governments, you need big corporations, uh, and you can't just change entire systems without a huge amount of people on board. Yeah, look, it is, it is the, the kind of the trendy language of the moment. And, and I mean, you know, I, I'd love to say we got there first, but the people have been thinking about system change for you know, decades, if not centuries. You're posing a very good question, um, Hanno, um, you know, which is, do, do you kind of need everybody on board? Or do we need to, to create acupuncture points in the in the old system right and 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 show how radical new things can come through and maybe you know one of the classic examples like but i think it's a good example now is what is happening on renewable energy we we still live in a world hannah where you know, somewhere in the order of 75 or 80 percent of the energy that gets used across the global economy is um coming from fossil fuels from coal, from oil, from gas. And, you know, what we know is that, you know, within a generation, within 20, 25 years, that number, 80% of our energy, will have to come from clean, zero carbon, not low carbon, zero carbon energy sources. And overwhelmingly, those will be forms of renewable energy. They, They won't be just renewable energy, there'll be some nuclear in the mix, there'll be some hydro, there'll be bits and pieces, but but the, the momentum is going to be with with renewable energy. So what does that mean in practice? Um, 
Well, one thing it means is that, you know, you're not just kind of happen. This doesn't happen as a single moment, right? It's not that system change, you know, occurs in a single moment of regime change. It's not quite like the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? Um, but what what does happen is that there comes a moment where even though today renewable energy, you know, is less than 10% of the mix, right? It's a tiny fraction, right? And under some people's ways of measuring, the, the renewable energy hasn't actually increased its share of, of total energy that much over the last five, 10 years. But what happens is that a moment comes where everybody who matters in this, right, and it's a lot of people, but, but everybody recognizes that the future is going to be renewable energy and that the future is not going to be oil and gas and the future is not going to be coal. And that that, that shift in mindset, right, and that fundamental understanding that, that these technologies that are coming through are not only cleaner, but they're cheaper, they're more easy to digitize, you can apply them to more different, you know, kind of end use applications across the global economy. That this is one of these general purpose technologies, kind of like the internet, right, which changes everything. And as it scales, it has immense network effects. And as those network effects kick in, it reinforces the change in the in the in the overall dynamics of the system. And what's going on with renewable energy at the moment is precisely that. So that even though it's a relatively small part of today's energy mix, you know, we're still driving around, well, we may not be at the moment, but in principle, you know, I still drive around in cars that use you know, gasoline and flying planes and you know, coal is still a huge part of the electricity system. Even though that is the case today, there is a deep understanding and that transcends policymakers and businesses and investors and consumers, all of us who've signed up to, to be you know, customers of Bulb here in the UK, there's a deep understanding that the future is unequivocally going to be different. And that is what system change is about. Right? And that doesn't always have to have everybody fully on board. But it does have to have a strong, if you will, kind of critical mass of agents that are both changing their actions today, but are also deeply changing their mindsets about what they are likely to do at the next moment where they can make a change. So you sound very optimistic and you feel that the mindset has changed. But with that shift in mindset, presumably need a vast number of people, individuals on board, prepared to make big changes to their behaviour and to their mindset. And these things take time. Are you optimistic too about the time frame? And how quickly do you imagine that can happen? Can it ever be fast enough? Do you have a sense of how much time we actually have? Well, we don't have enough time and we're way behind, Hannah. You know that, right? I mean, we are unquestionably, you know, you pick your number of decades, somewhere between 10 years too late and 25 years too late in terms of really getting on top of this. But arguably, it's not too late, right? I mean, in the sense that, you know, once a 
recognition of the inevitability of change takes hold, it can create its own tailwind. And that sense of inevitability almost kind of acts as its own kind of accelerator. Right? So, so you know, we were able to, you know, essentially um, kind of populate the world with smartphones. And it's not everywhere in the world, but it's pretty ubiquitous um, across billions of, of users uh, in less than a decade. Um, and smartphones are easier to, you know, kind of deploy globally in, in a decade than than all, you know, kind of applications of, of clean energy. Um, but, you know, it, it is, I, I'm certainly much more optimistic than I was even five years ago. And the reason I'm optimistic is a very simple fact, uh, which is that, you know, in Abu Dhabi, um, in the Middle East, the latest tender for solar power, uh, which was for three gigawatts of solar power, uh, came in with an agreed auction price of 1.3 US cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and when new solar comes in at that price point, it beats everything. It beats old coal, it beats gas, it beats you name it, right? Um, and you get to a point where that clean energy source is not only cheap, but it's potentially so abundant um, that we can use it to supply hydrogen. And not hydrogen the old way, cracked out of natural gas, but hydrogen the new way, electrolyzed out of water. And when we've got clean zero carbon hydrogen, and we've got clean zero carbon electrons, we've got molecules and electrons in abundance that we will need to, if you will, refuel the world economy, but on a, a zero carbon basis. And it was very interesting, you may have seen this that today, that there was a, a letter that was sent in by 50 CEOs of you know, leading companies across the UK, including the CEO of Heathrow Airport and, and others, right? Um, arguing for a green recovery, um, arguing for investments in building the infrastructure that we will need in the UK to be the most, if you will, ambitious zero carbon advanced economy in the world. And amongst those investments was one that was around creating sustainable aviation fuel, which will have to be a combination of hydrogen, clean hydrogen, and probably CO2 that gets captured out of other processes, that gets used to create what are called synthetic fuels, that effectively will allow us to fly on a zero carbon basis. Um, now, I, the, the, the only point I would make in this is that when I started my work on on climate and you know the whole question of you know how we would solve for these tough problems. It seemed like getting to zero carbon aviation was 10, 20 years away, right? Um, and and we're now talking about realistic options at scale within the next you know five to ten years. There is a sea change happening, Hannah. 
And of course, for this podcast, we're looking specifically at food systems. What sort of transformations do you think we can expect to see there? Is there a sea change happening there too, hopefully? I think um, the food system is behind the rest of the energy system, right? Um, But that's kind of helpful in the sense that we've now got something to look at, right? We can see that, that change can happen fast and it can scale and it can then have multiple applications. And in fact, I put that renewable energy revolution will play through into how we produce fertilizers and how we produce clean water. And it can have many different applications that will be critical to the food and land uses. But it is the case that the food system is behind where the energy system is. And in the Food and Land Use Coalition, have been doing a lot of work in many countries, um, but the you know, the sum of it is that we have a food system that that generates huge costs to society in terms of environmental impact and health impacts. And you can put a dollar number on them if you want. And the, the dollar number looks like you know something like twelve trillion dollars a year, which is an insane number because it's bigger than the market value of all food and agricultural um, production. Um, but you know we we're beginning. I think, to grapple with this. Um, And the most obvious and closest analogue to the kind of the renewable energy story in in the energy system is what's going on with alternative proteins. Um, And what is so exciting about those is that they have similar features. As those alternative protein technologies begin to scale up, um, and this is the impossible foods and all the rest of it, they will come down in cost. There will be ever more, ever better science that gets applied. And it will be, I think, possible to um, substitute for meat, which is by far the biggest, if you will, driver of of, of excess resource use in the, the food and, and ag system. Um, but we will find more and more and more substitutes uh, for meat that are appetizing, healthy, good for the planet, good for people. And it's not to pretend that all the alternative protein issues are solved, not by any stretch of imagination, but it's on the journey, for sure. That is never going to be enough, right? Um, It's going to be a critical part of taking pressure off the food system. Um, But we have to combine it with learning how to do regenerative agriculture. Um, And the great stunning opportunity that sits in front of us with regenerative agriculture is our ability now to combine, you know, kind of 21st century tech, whether it's kind of AI for agriculture or it's remote sensing or it's our ability to really understand what's going on with soil health. Um, So our ability to combine kind of 21st century tech with, you know, some ancient wisdom is absolutely phenomenal, um, and and I and I think that that will be a second big leg of what plays out in the in the food system. Um, we do not need to be trapped by the you know kind of monoculture, chemically intensive form of agriculture that has grown up over the last fifty years, and and of course it grew up for a good reason because it was solving a very particular problem perceived as we just don't have enough 
good supply in the world. That's not today's problem, right? Today's problem is somewhat different, which is we actually do have ample supply, but we're not producing it in the right way and we're not producing the right food because it's generating not just environmental costs, but, but, but massive, massive health costs as well. So I think a second leg will be that, and I think we will then have to work very deeply, very systematically, on new models for protecting nature in its own right, and in particularly the forests and other critical biomes. When you talk about meat and system change with regards to meat, are you saying that your idea of an optimal changing of a system would involve moving to a world in which we take meat out of the diet altogether? Is meat-free the big system change we should be moving towards? I'm not in that camp. I'm, I'm less prescriptive than that. Um, I, I bias to a view which is that, um, you know, meat can become a luxury item, right, that people will want it once in a while for a change, right? Um, there'll be other societies in the world that will um, continue to, if you will, move up the meat consumption curve a little bit, right? Because that will be, for them, for a while, the most affordable or available source of, of protein. So I don't come from the, the camp which goes no meat, right? I, I do come from the camp which is of the view that for healthy diets that are good for people and good for the planet, the, the high aspiration diets of the future will be much less oriented to meat and much more oriented to a diverse range of different types of food and a very diverse range of different types of protein. There's so much more detail we could, of course, go into, but unfortunately we have to keep these podcasts down to bite size. So I'd like to move on to something that you've recently written about, and that's the situation we find ourselves in while we're recording this interview, which is just emerging really from our lockdown cautiously after or still really in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And you've written about how we could perhaps use this crisis, make 2020 the decisive decade. You talk about the COVID looking glass. What do you mean by that? Do you feel that there are ways, despite the terrible tragedy of it all, that we can in fact benefit and learn lessons and, and move forward more positively after this? Well, we have better learned some lessons, it seems to me, because <laughs> uh, we certainly don't want to uh, re repeat the mistake. Um, uh, there are different kinds of lessons um, that, that we can learn. What we meant by the, um, the looking glass was a, was a couple of different ideas, um, kind of maybe elided <laughs> into the, the, the single metaphor. One was just the extent to which um, the... Um, COVID um, episode just magnifies um, what's going on. It magnifies the fault lines, the inequalities, the injustices that are prevalent throughout our societies, both at a national but also international level. Those, those injustices, I think, have been revealed in ever more stark detail. Um, it, it's a, clearly an accelerator of underlying trends. Um, so we know that the sense of almost anything digital is getting accelerated in its application across multiple sectors of our economy. Um, it's it's the, the 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 metaphor of a of a looking glass was also meant to imply that we off, that we would kind of look from the other end of the telescope. Um, 
one of the things about system change, Hannah, is that really good system change starts with an articulation of where we want to be, and it solves backwards from that. If we want to be in a place by 2030 where we've got climate under control, where we are, are well on the path to that, where we are genuinely tackling the root causes of inequalities in our society, then let's be clear about what kind of, if you will, political and economic system would enable us to be tackling that. And let's solve backwards from there. And as we rebuild, we don't just build back better, but we build better almost backwards from that future that we jointly want to have together. Um, And so that was the sense of what COVID could be as a looking glass for us, as a way of like being clearer and more honest with ourselves about what's wrong, recognising where we can accelerate, and then anchoring that acceleration, not just in kind of a evolution of what we have today, but in anchoring it from the world that we want to build together. So from a business or from a systemic point of view, how do you go about harnessing that hope and harnessing perhaps an increased preparedness to make changes to lifestyle or to policy? How do you go about turning that into actual change? In terms of the work that Systemic does, um, there's a very clear, critical task that sits ahead of us over the next you know, 12 to 24 months. And that is you know, to ensure as much of the packages that will be invested in you know, the recovery are made to work for the longer term agenda of, of climate and sustainability and inequality. We're working um, on, a, on a piece right now to figure out how do you bring investments into the food system that will actually support regenerative agriculture that will tackle the insane food losses that play out across the food system, uh, particularly in the developing world. Um, How do we make it, you know, a food system that gets rebuilt um, on the basis of, you know, healthier diets, regenerative agriculture, and and much, if you will, more efficient ways of of minimising food loss and waste. So that's kind of, you know, you know, in the food system, centre stage for the work that Systemic will be doing. And it will be true in the energy system and it will be true in the work that we do um, on, on broad, more broadly on nature, right? I mean, we, we really do need to, um, you know, make sure that investments are made to take a simple example, you know, green our cities, right? There are any number of innovative ways that we can make our cities greener, um, whether it's by planting trees in the cities or it is by investing in the green spaces that have been underinvested in for the last 10, 20 years, certainly here in the UK, but not just in the UK. Or it's getting that focus on walking and biking, right? And we get pollution out of the the, the local environment, but as we do that, we, we help tackle climate at the same time. We've got to be pragmatic, Hannah. I do want us to shoot for the stars, but I also want us to stay firmly planted on, on the ground that we've got. And that ground is going to be investing a huge amount of public capital over the next one, two years. And our responsibility as systemic is to make sure that that capital is deployed as as thoughtfully and as wisely as possible. Um, and the EU is, you know, frankly, beginning to 
head in a very good and very interesting direction on that. Um, but it's not just the EU. I mean, South Korea is doing a wonderful job. Right? There are countries out there that are really picking up on this challenge. But it's no good, is it, unless everyone, unless all countries, all governments are on board? Do you feel that the majority are? I mean, I can think of one or two who don't always seem to be. I think governments in general are being pulled in many different directions. Um, and some of that is legitimate, right, honestly, because you know they're worried about just the very short term imperative of getting people back to work. Right? And, and I think we should be, you know, kind of, honest about how important that is and we wrote about it in the through the looking glass notes but people need to get back to work and have jobs and and i completely buy why for many governments that will you know be just a bigger priority than almost anything else um and it's our job to prove that those jobs can be found in in greener more socially inclusive activities um so so i i think governments are going to find it a real challenge um, we haven't entered, I think, the, the, the deepest part of the economic challenge yet, which I believe will happen roughly in Q4 of this year, where we will find a wave of you know, corporate bankruptcies and we may find some sovereign debt defaults. So, so we should be thoughtful and you know, kind of appreciative of the challenge that even well-funded governments face, let alone governments in many developing countries, which simply don't have the fiscal headroom. Um, I do think the companies, by the way, are absolutely key to getting this stuff right. So, so the fact that, you know, there were 50 companies that signed a letter, I mean, we all do these letter signing things, but we did it for the Food and Land Use Coalition, where we had a whole series of, of companies and also, you know, kind of other stakeholders send a note out, which was all about the, the looming kind of food food emergency that might turn COVID from being a public health tragedy into a human, humanitarian disaster. But getting companies on board, getting them clearly and unambiguously making the case for a green recovery, an inclusive recovery, one that will have strings attached to bailouts, is a big deal. And then I think we as consumers can make a difference. I mean, let's just recognise that we have choices in who we buy food from, who we buy our clothing from, who we buy, you know, a whole host of different services from. You know, if we're going to be authentic, it's time to start using that consumer power and being deliberate and conscious in those consumer choices that we make. System change is all of that. Just to finish off and pick up your point about individual consumer choices, perhaps you could offer some advice to listeners about things that they can do when they're thinking about what choices to make as a consumer? Well, we have um, at my home had the joy of having to cook more and eat less processed food and and be together as a family, having more meals together. And I realise that's a real kind of middle class thing to say. <laughs> um, and not everybody has the opportunity to do that. But I think as much as anything, discovering that food isn't just about, you know, calories and you know, grams of protein and all that, but it's deeply cultural and it's deeply social. And and the more that we properly reconnect with what we're eating and how we're cooking it and how we're together as families and communities in the experience that is centred around food, 
and we stop thinking about it as fuel and think much more deeply about the role of food in building the society that we want, both for our own immediate families, but for all those other families that are part of the food system, the more we personalize and humanize it, the better chance that we have to create the food system that we want together. Jeremy, thank you very much indeed. It's been fantastic hearing from you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Hannah. It's been a pleasure.